Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. We're kidding ourselves if we think people will stop talking. You're one of the Monterey Five, right? Monterey Five? Just the way he said it, you know. How did he say it? Like we all have scarlet letters on our backs. It's gonna get us. It's gonna get us all. What are you talking about? The lie. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Big Little Lies. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson, and I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week on this show, we break down the latest episode of Big Little Lies. This week, we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 2, The Telltale Hearts, which is directed, as they all are, by Andrea Arnold and written by David E. Kelly and Liam Moriarty. This week, we have an interview with the lovely Crystal Fox, who plays Elizabeth Howard, Bonnie's mother. Uh, she's going to talk to us about her relationship to Zoe Kravitz and some of the things that this new generation of mothers brings to Big Little Lies. And before we get into all that, we have some emails from you guys, our listeners. If you want to write into stillwatchingpod at gmail.com and tell us all your thoughts, questions, gossip, concerns about Big Little Lies, we would love to hear them. We got a bunch of great emails this week. And I am going to start with this first one from Thomas. Thomas writes, um, I was curious as to whether either of you read any queer subtext in Big Little Lies season two, episode one. I'm thinking particularly of the outright camp of Renata lip syncing Diana Rotz in glitzy red couture, practically drag, but also Jane dancing on the beach to mystery of love with its inevitable call me by your name connotations and the broader themes of trauma, solidarity, intersectionality and fraught nature of sexuality, very queer relevant issues. I'm thinking too of a recent HBO pride event where drag race queens dressed up as the Monterey five. Are these purely incidental moments or do they together speak to a broader, more deliberate choice by the show headlined by cisgender heterosexual women to embrace queer codes slash conventions, or at the very least to entertain slash pander to queer audiences. Um, and that is from Tom. So I am going to ask you, Richard, what you think of that. <laughs> Why me? Um, no, I mean, I'll take, I'll think- wait, wait, I'll take this one. Richard. <laughs> um, no, I think that, um, 
there's definitely a, a queer read on the show. I don't know that it's necessarily overt, but you know, I think that we're, we're at the uh, 50th anniversary of Stonewall, uh, riots almost. Um, we have like world pride in New York. And so, you know, part of the sort of myth of Stonewall, which is probably apocryphal and not really true is that it happened on the night that Judy Garland died. Uh, and Judy Garland was a gay icon because she was a woman who was dealing with a lot of struggle and um, men sort of imposing their will on her. And so I think gay people, especially gay men, saw a sort of commonality in that narrative. You know, and that's been the same way for many sort of diva worship, uh, you know, icons, um, yeah, from the gay community. Uh, and that tra- that travels all the way to Big Little Lies. Absolutely. I mean, I think you don't put Meryl Streep in a weird wig and false teeth and have her screaming or Laura Dern doing a photo shoot or whatever, you know, all the myriad of things that happen on this show or going to happen with the ice cream toss, you know, seen around the world, um, which we've, we've yet to watch <laughs> on the actual show. Um, for sure. I mean, I think that there's an argument to be made that like anything is queer if you kind of want to bring a queer sensibility to it, unless it's overtly not. I would argue like Suicide Squad is not a queer movie, but like there is queer context, subtext, whatever in, in lots of things. And, uh, and Big Little Lies, it's almost overt. Um, yes. I, I, um, I don't know what you think of the idea of pandering to. Like, do you think that there's any like queer baiting in the way that, that it's all sort of positioned? No, I think it's a smart, entertaining show uh, that um, tells an interesting story about interesting female characters and um, whoever that appeals to, be they queer or not, you know, whatever gender identity, whatever sexual identity they, you know, like, I think that it's just good television. Uh, and yeah, there's some, some stuff that's maybe speaks more directly to women or gay men or whoever else but um i don't i don't see that as pandering i see that as potentially making something for people um and there's nothing wrong with that um all right so then this next question comes from andrea jones who writes in and asks um basically about marin dungy's character detective quinlan who was sort of seen spying on the moms on the beach at the end of season one we get um a little bit of sort of hints of whether or not the detectives are still on the case. But the question um, Andrea asks is, are we, were we meant to take that scene at the end of season one? Literally um, are we meant to take the detective and, and the idea of a news closing in literally, or any of, is any of this in Bonnie's head? Um, Bonnie in this episode tells Madeline that she's afraid it's going to get them. And Madeline says, what? And she's the lie. So it's like the lie. Um, I thought I was clever calling this a season, the telltale heart season. And I just completely forgot that this episode was called the telltale hearts. So like, you know, that's, which is a Edgar Allan Poe story about, you know, guilt, the be, you know, the, the murderer feels like they can hear the beating heart of their victim from under the, the floorboards and that it will give them away. So like the, you know, it's not the crime as the cover up as Richard said last week, et cetera. So, how much are we supposed to take this detective sort of on the fringes of the narrative um, literally or is any of this, um, you know, invented subjective? Richard, what do you think? I mean, I take her presence at the beach watching them literally. Um, but I think and I and I, I, try, I believe that Bonnie saw her. A baby was the only one, which is a nice sort of visual narrative device to you know, further other Bonnie. I mean, this is a really big episode for her and we see a lot more of that and it's given more context, which I appreciated. But in the, in the sole example of the detective, yeah, I think that's real. But, and I think the way it manifests itself in her sort of dream or anxiety states, maybe it's a little more overstated or a little bit, you know, the, the contrast has been turned up or something. Um, 
But no, I I think this detective really is there kind of lurking on the periphery waiting to nail these and people. And, you know, it should be we, – we had a little bit of, like, interrogation footage in the first episode, which we don't have in this episode. But I think that um, that's something that I'm – without a spoiler because i actually don't know i've only seen the next episode and and i have no evidence from that but like it's something that i'm hoping will pay off and build this sort of like reviewing interrogation footage and stuff like that um so i think my guess would be since marin dungy is you know in the cast for season two we've seen her like that this will be something um that will will play a bigger part going forward i think it is interesting we've talked a lot um about the the use of race on this show and it becomes more overt in this episode when Bonnie's mother comes to town and is like, I haven't seen anyone who looks like you, you know, sort of in this town. This last question comes from Joey's, Joey and Joey asks, this is a very Little Gold Men crossover question, but um basically, do how intentional do we think pushing Big Little Eyes past the Emmy consideration window is? Um, was that the right move in this season? Will anyone remember Big Little Lies season two come next year? Emmys next year? Um, did they not want Big Little Lies trying to compete with Game of Thrones? What was happening there? Um, and also is, you know, is there anyone like, is it, is it only Meryl Streep? I would argue in this episode, perhaps we might keep, want to keep our eyes on Adam Scott for like sort of stealth awards consideration. So like, what do you think awards wise, the strategy and the potential is for Big Little Eyes season two, Richard? Well, I think the number one priority was not overlapping with Game of Thrones, because why would you overlap your two biggest hit shows, you know, like, like stagger them, you know, make sure they're not competing with each other. Yes, first and foremost. And in terms of Emmy consideration, my guess would be that the, the sort of strategy people over there were like, well, look, we did really well last time. Yes, it will be a full year away or whatever, but like plenty of summer shows do that. And, and, you know, some don't like sharp objects didn't really, you know, maintain any momentum. Um, well, I guess we don't really know that yet, do we? We d- well, because it would be this for year. Emmys, yeah, but like Golden Globes, and like it didn't do very well, yeah. Like that, so, yeah. Right. So, you know, but so again, so maybe I just disproved my points. Like I kind of forgot that <laughs> Sharp Objects was still, um, but I don't know. I think that they trusted that second season, huge show, huge stars, even bigger star joining the cast. Um, they'll be okay. And the most important thing requirement was met, which was that it didn't get in the way of Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones did not get in the way of it. And I think something that, um, you know, they could have pushed it all the way to fall, right? Perhaps. Mm, and, yeah. um, you know, to, to bring it closer in people's minds, but Big Little Lies feels like such a summer show to me. Like this, we're yeah. all like very lucky that the sun's out, the like, you know, the beverages are, are frosty and we get to watch Big Little Lies. I think, I think it is a summer show. So, um, that might be even more important to them than the, awards that they might uh get from it but also going back to the the first email like releasing big little eyes season two featuring meryl streep during pride month is not a bad idea (laughs) right (laughs) it's like tales of the city tales of the city is on netflix and big little eyes on hbo happy pride happy pride um all right okay and then like the last thing we want to do before we sort of zip through the episode and our thoughts on that is uh you know we've decided in in our previous uh you know life as a game of thrones podcast we gave out these awards we don't want to give out the same award every week for big little lies so we decided to like come up with like rotating awards uh for the episode so this week we just wanted to award the most meme worthy moment um it's probably like if we were to do this every week it would probably just be laura dern every week so uh though it looks like meryl streep won the meme wars last week with her um 
Tableside Scream. I don't know if I'm sure our listeners saw uh, the the edit of um, Shallow um, yeah, over so over good. Meryl Streep screaming. It's pretty my favorite meme of the week. So. And there's like the Carly Rae Jepsen saxophone. Some, the, the same person did that yeah, too. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very good. But yeah, we're going to do superlatives. I mean, look, it's yearbook season. It's graduation season. <laughs> so just think of it that way. Most likely to succeed. All right. So, uh, this week is, yeah, we're just, we're going to put our chips on most meme worthy moment. Um, so who, who has the most meme worthy moment for you, Richard? Well, I hate to be obvious, but Laura Dern screaming in a prison about how she's not not going to be rich anymore is is his. I mean, <laughs> you know, same. Or, but I'm not rich now, but maybe, hopefully, me in 20 years or something. Um, so that one, that one probably takes my cake. Though I would, I would, I would. I don't know how you could quite cut it into a gift that worked, but Reese Witherspoon walking away from Meryl Streep and, and just muttering "weirdo" um, was was a personal favorite. How about you? Um, yeah, that that is a hard gift moment for sure. But um, I'm like, I'm like, how can I make this gift for Richard? I'll I'll work on it. I'll make it for you. <laughs> um, for me, it's um, it's also Laura Dern. It's got to be. It's um, it's her driving away from her Tesla. Um, in her Tesla, like middle finger extended out the, the sunroof after she's thrown her husband out of the car. Um, <laughs> and I think she says something like, you know, give a woman a moment or something like that. Uh, so anytime Renata screams, it's hard to. Yeah. Give a woman a moment. That's pretty yeah. good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's what we've got. I mean, like there's other stuff, uh, you know, obviously like Meryl Streep saying like what she says, like, I don't like you or something. I mean, she just says some stuff that you're like, wow. Um, uh, yeah. So if you, if you guys have, disagree with us, please, please email stillwatchingpod.gmail.com. Let us know what you think your meme worthy moment is. I will be curious. I'll be watching the memes this week to see if, uh, if someone, if people picked up on anything other than Laura Dern screaming, but it's hard to beat it. It's also, I mean, Richard rejected my suggestion we do best dress, but I'm going to sneak this in anyway and just say that like Laura Dern's outfit when, uh, Renata's outfit when her husband gets arrested, which is this like, insane puffy vest belted puffy vest over like chanel pants with like a chanel bag or maybe fanny pack is or no louis vuitton pants and like a chanel bag anyway it's a it's one of the craziest things i've ever seen and i saw her in that red sparkling number last week so you know keep your eye on renata's fashion but all right let us get to the episode um, itself. I actually kind of want to begin at the end just because I'm afraid I'm going to forget it. Um, I don't know how many people listening binge watched season one to refresh themselves since it's been like, you know, nearly two years since it was last on. Um, but the, the closing song choice is, is a cover of the Elvis Presley song, The Wonder of You, which of course is what, um, Adam Scott's character Ed sang or Adam Scott lip synced. It was someone else singing for him, um, at the talent show last year. And it was like such a powerful moment in season one. Um, because it, this is a love, you know, the lyrics of The Wonder of You. It's such a like tender love song dedicated to his wife. And she, you just watch Reese Witherspoon under the glare of all that like affection crumple with her own guilt of knowing that she's had this sort of extramarital affair. Um, so I thought that was a really, uh, snappy choice, uh, to, to close out the episode after Ed has had his big moment. I just want, I guess I want Richard to hear your thoughts on like, Ed throughout, Adam Scott throughout. This is just like a real, he was a great supporting player in season one. He's great again here, but like this feels like the most he's gotten to do. Um, what do you, what do you think of all the Ed of this episode? Well, I think it's a really interesting character because I can't quite get a read on him, which is sort of 
true to real life. Um, you know, he seems like kind of a jerk sometimes. He seems very like in the right for feeling wronged other times. He's kind. He's a little cold. Like he, he, he just feels like a full person. And I think that's why it's a really interestingly written character and a really interesting performance. Um, and you know, with, with the stuff in this episode with this kind of convenient daughter blurting out that, Madeline had an affair and he overhears and you're like, wow, this is really melodramatic in the same episode where Renata's husband gets arrested. I was like, sure. Th- a lot of things sure are happening, <laughs> but then the sh- the way that the show kind of always does is by the end when that song is playing and it's back to the sort of Jean-Marc Vallée esque, you know, quick cuts and ruminative little scene, you know, uh, shots. Uh, it absorbs that melodrama and makes you feel something sort of more, real you know it, it's it, it's remarkable the way that this show can serve you up such a sort of high calorie meal but then afterward you don't feel gross or overstuffed or whatever it just feels exactly proportional it's a weird bit of alchemy or you know wizardry that this show can do yeah and i think i think also that that um that scene he has where he you know declares their marriage over um and you know he allows the hurt in his voice he he like you know he wobbles a bit and i think uh, i'm influenced by the fact you know i've seen adam scott in a number of things i knew him from party down before i knew him from parks and rec i've seen a lot of his like you know indie films or or even like Step Brothers and stuff like that we've seen adam scott do a lot of things but his most iconic role is ben wyatt like loveliest boyfriend slash husband in the whole world on parks and recreation the last time i think i remember ben wyatt crying was like the wedding episode of parks and recreation so when i hear adam scott like put some water in his voice (laughs) like it Mm -hmm. immediately hit me like really hard and um and i think it hits madeline too and um i so i I like that you know this is once again we talked about this last week like reese witherspoon wanting something maybe a little juicier than madeline is and the you know madeline is maybe a little one note um you know tracy flick-esque in in the book and she wanted a little bit more drama um, for, for her character. And so they added the extramarital affair in the first season. And so then this fallout, I mean, all of this season is added, but like this fallout is, is sort of the natural extension of that. And, um, and, and I really love it. I really, really love it here. And, and to then compare this fallout to, you know, the other battles Madeline's fighting, like with her trying to get her daughter to go to school. Um, getting Abigail back home with her. Uh, so her conversations with Bonnie and then her conversations with Mary Louise, um, which are, which is just someone calling her out on her shit in a way she's not used to. Um, what do you think of like Madeline's whole journey in this episode? I think it's interesting. I think that Madeline is, I mean, yes, she had the concrete things of the affair and now with her daughter and now her husband finding out about the affair like that. And, and obviously the murder, um, so those are, those are plot points for her character to sort of be arranged around. But unlike, um, certainly Bonnie or Celeste, who have, who had distinct sort of, I guess, narrative guidelines, the Madeline character always felt a little more loose, a looser. She was kind of just like in scenes, but none of the scenes were, really about her story. She was just kind of reacting to Celeste's story and to an extent Bonnie's story, uh, um, excuse me, uh, Jane's story. Right. Um, 
And so I think now that she's getting a little more focus, it's interesting. And Reese Witherspoon plays it really well. Again, I get a little bit skittish about adding too much to the mix, you know, too many kind of uh, dramatic plot developments. Again, the show handles those well and can absorb some of that. But um, I don't know, given that this is just the second episode of this season, and granted it's a short season, it's like, well, where do we go from here? I hope it doesn't get <laughs> right. too more high drama. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I don't know if we can promise you that. Um, yeah. So the, uh, the Madeline moment that I, that like really struck me. Um, and, and this speaks to, this is, this is a, like, I would say this is a, a Bonnie episode. And so I kind of want to like finish with Bonnie. So we'll get to Bonnie eventually. Um, but, um, the Madeline moment that really struck me is, you know, she goes to pick up Celeste, no questions asked. Celeste in like an ambient haze has crashed her car. Um, she picks her up in the robe. She's there for her. She's supportive. She sees Bonnie on the side of the road. Um, she pulls over. She sort of begins interrogating Bonnie, like, where are you going? What are you doing? Get in the car. And then she goes, are you on drugs? You know, and then Bonnie has the great, like, are you on drugs? Like, fantastic retort. <laughs> but like, they drive away and, you know, Madeline's essentially like she's unraveling I can't believe it can you believe it all the while Celeste is like sitting next to her in the car like having driven her car into a a tree on drugs you know like she's literally the person on drugs and so this idea once again it's like um the insider outsider thing you know what I mean and it's like there's there's the circle the wagons aspect um, that happens around the core group of, of large, you know, of white women in this town. And then there's like, Madeline wants to circle the wagons with Bonnie because they're all sort of complicit in this one thing. Um, Bonnie is resistant to that. And so she gets, she's still getting the outsider treatment and the suspicion and all of that. And that's, um, that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. And it's, and it's then, well, you know, um, complimented by the stuff with Bonnie and her mom, Elizabeth. Yeah. All right. So I want to hop over to that, but really quickly, I want to touch on Jane and um, this other really profound moment of the episode, which is Jane having to tell her son, Ziggy, who his father is, first of all, which he already knew, and also um, kind of the nature of how he was born. Um, This is a scene that really highlights uh, the power of, good child actors and, and, and really quiet moments. Like we talked about the melodrama. This is a melodramatic moment. Like this woman has to tell her son about, you know, what assault means and stuff like that. That's, that's melodramatic who your father is, all that sort of stuff. But it's so quietly done in this very like, um, intimate, tucked into bed sort of moment. And, um, I'm wondering if that helps you, Richard, um, calibrate some of the like Laura Dern shrieking. Does this quieter moment sort of counterbalance that for you? Yeah, I think that moment was really well done. Um, and I think Shailene Woodley is giving a really interesting, good performance. I, I liked her last season. I know some people were a little bit on the fence about her performance, but I think she's really grown into it as I think Zoe Kravitz has, which we'll talk about. But, um, yeah, I like that moment. And I also think that the way that it then rippled into Celeste's life, where, you know, you saw a glimmer of her sort of self-protection when she said, we promised we wouldn't tell them. And, 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 and Jane says, well, look, I, what was I supposed to do? Like, I, yeah. I can't keep lying to him. Um, and then the way that, um, Celeste just kind of tells Mary Louise about it. And you, you get to this scene that's in Medias Race where she's already sort of said to her mother-in-law, 
it was a rape. It was, you know, he, he abused me and she's kind of repeating the points to a disbelieving Mary Louise. And I thought that the show was going to build to some huge reveal of that where Mary Louise would be so shocked and whatever. And I like that they actually went the more downbeat sort of off rhythm route with that. Um, because it, it just further complicates the, this whole dynamic between these women, um, and this new character. Um, so yeah, I didn't expect for all of that stuff to come to light in terms of parentage and past abuse and all that in the second episode of the season. But now that they have, it leaves me all the more curious where they could travel with that from, from here. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by Meryl Streep's line reading of, I don't believe you, where she just goes, I don't believe you. Like, and, and mm-hmm. it, it was like very interesting because, to deliver that line, to have a woman say, like, your your husband beat me, and for the line in response to be like, I don't believe you, there's a lot of different ways that you could play that. Um, and Meryl Streep decided to put some light, or, or Andrea Arnold, I don't know who, who decided this, but, like, to put an interesting amount of lightness on it, you know what I mean? It, because, like... And even, and even the parts where Mary Louise talks about going to you know, the cops and, and filling in the details of like, you left this out, you left that out, you left that out, didn't you? All of that could have been so much more menacing. But I think, as you say, we're in episode two, and they're trying to calibrate this sort of like, it's not a definitive break between Mary Louise and Celeste here. It's a it's a progression of a conversation. But it's not, um, I'm closing the door on our relationship because you told me this and I think maybe you killed my son, like all of that. It's not quite there. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I think that the, I don't believe you. That's a little bit sing song. Um, what that was communicated to me was Mary Louise saying, well, maybe something happened, but I'm sure it wasn't that bad. Right. You didn't go to the I don't cops. think she was saying flat out, you're completely li- making this up. Yeah. I think it was more like, Oh, don't be, you're exaggerating, you know? Um, which I think is a much more believable stance for this woman who is both emotionally expressive in terms of screaming her, her lungs out at, a, you know, to express grief in front of her family um, and will sp- speak plainly to Madeline about what she thinks about her. So she's not guarded in that way, certainly, but in other ways is clearly very tightly preserving a sort of myth of her son. Um, and so it's sort of shut off to those realities um which is a uh would seem a dichotomy that maybe couldn't exist in a person but that absolutely does and that's part of the way that these cycles of abuse are perpetuated across generations is that unfortunately there are people on the sidelines who do a really hard you know do do a lot of work to you know blind themselves to it or obscure it somehow or minimize it in their mind uh and so that might manifest itself you know verbally by like oh i don't believe you you know because you have to dismiss it so lightly because otherwise it really threatens the the world you've kind of created for yourself yeah and it's um it's really fascinating to watch then celeste talk to the twin boys who once again i just i really think those those two boy actors um along with um ian armitage as ziggy like have really kind of come leaps and bounds from season one, but to talk to them about Perry and say, no, he was a wonderful, beautiful man. And then she says the word she uses weak. He could be weak sometimes um, like uh-huh. all of us, but he was a wonderful, beautiful man. It's such a hard scene to watch because you like both understand why she would want to preserve that for them. And it's hard to hear the villain of season one talk to them. And it's one thing for Mary Louise to do it, but for Celeste to do it, and and you already called out that scene that she has with Jane where you're like curious, you're like, how, will her 
you know, her allyship with Jane stand the test of, you know, the pressure from Mary Louise and, and the desire to, uh, you know, make Perry not a monster for her own boys and stuff like that. And, and how does that all end? And then you see this final montage of like the, the fan, the weird little family kind of coming together and how much that means emotionally for Jane. Um, and how much the boys are just being nice with each other and how sweet it is. And it's, it's all so, I think, beautifully complicated and well calibrated for Celeste. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's not following exactly this, the contours that I thought it would. Um, and I appreciate the surprise of that. And, um, you know, in the same way that like I was worried that the therapist scenes with Celeste would be feel redundant this year because so much has already been expressed. And, and in, in, in some senses, in a physical form, at least the problem has been dealt with. Um, but they are finding new, interesting angles of inquiry there. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. I think this episode contains a lot, you know, um, and whether I find all of it happening within the same day really credible i don't know but um (laughs) well whatever uh, yeah i mean you talked about melodrama so like let's 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 revisit really quickly my favorite segment which is dr amanda reisman uh best therapist or worst therapist terrible therapist question mark um so that's robin weigert's character and in this scene we get uh her taking celeste sort of on a thought experiment which is like what if you put madeline in your own place um, you know, in, in an example of when Perry beat her up, um, in the closet, it punched her in the stomach. And you get this very guttural screams of like, no, from Celeste, which you then get repeated sort of when she's breaking up the fight with her boys. Uh, no, you will not be like him sort of thing. Yeah. Um, do, so, so how does this read to you? Um, you've already said you, you think this is like good territory for the therapy session to revisit, but like, um, you know, for me, this is the only moment Nicole screaming, uh, Celeste screaming. No, it's the only moment that felt like, okay, maybe this is a little too much, uh, for me. But then again, trauma's trauma, you know what I mean? And, and, and we cope with trauma, how we cope with trauma. So, um, what did you think of the therapy session in that regard? Yeah, I thought, the, I thought it was powerful. I thought it was well acted. Um, yeah, like anytime someone's going to, shout like that in a semi-public space. I'm like, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, again, uh, I'm not in the same position by any means. Um, I think that what that scene and the way that it is, particularly the way that it's echoed later when she breaks up the fight between her sons, uh, and then you have Jane worrying about Ziggy, and you have Madeline looking at her daughter and and wondering what's to, to come of her, and you have, uh, you know, her other daughter... Uh, getting in, in the mix that everyone now is turning to realize, Oh, everything we're doing or everything we've experienced is having some bearing on our children. And the sort the mounting panic of that mm-hmm. and the, the undercut with the worry that it's maybe too late um, is constricting in the best possible way. I mean, it's just really closing in on the show, like, like a, like a vice. And I really, um, I think that that's a really interesting and, um, underexplored maybe, um, uh, de- device for drama, you know? And, uh, if that's kind of where the season is looking in general, uh, now especially that you have this looming mother figure entering the picture from a different generation to kind of explain one of the major characters from last season in, or put him in a new context, um, 
I, I'm into all of that and all the way that it interrelates um, in this cloistered, very self-congratulatory, helicoptery kind of world. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about another mother coming to town, um, which is sort of the the plotline we've been circling, which is the the expansion of Bonnie, Zoe Kravis's character, is my favorite part of this new season. I think it's the most worthwhile reason to do a second season. And so we've yeah. got Crystal Fox as Elizabeth Howard and Martin Donovan as Martin Howard, her parents coming to town. The, the emphasis is on, um, Elizabeth, obviously, and her relationship with Bonnie. Um, this is a story. This is tricky. We're not going to talk about book spoilers here, but this is like the last remaining book spoiler, um, from season one, uh, that, that, you know, people might want to go read up on if they want, but, but those who've read the book, um, have extra information about Bonnie's relationship with her parents. Um, so that is something that I'm really glad that they're visiting here. Um, we first see Elizabeth, I believe, in Bonnie's rear view as she's driving. This car is behind her. Maybe, or maybe it's supposed to be actually, I'm actually not sure if it, perhaps it's supposed to be Mary Dungy's character, but like there's a figure behind her. I immediately assumed it was her mom on second rewatch, but, um, I'll have to go look closer. But, um, this idea of Bonnie being caught, caught off guard, feeling like hunted, feeling like accosted when she's at yoga, like her happy place. Um, and her, and her mom shows up and she's like immediately discomfited. And this mom, her mom is here with her opinions, with a implication of a drinking problem and with crystals. And Bonnie wants her gone sort of immediately so much so that she's willing to like literally like cozy up to Nathan. Um, someone she's felt estranged from to get him to remove her mother from the situation. Um, so what do you think of this other mother coming to town and this uh, glimpse into Bonnie's family life? Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, I think the smart way that you handle a second season like this is you have to, I mean, some shows do it less successfully, like the tailies and lost, but you have to introduce new people who can observe what you've accepted as the reality of the show and then comment on it and change things, right. you know? Mm, yeah. Um, and so I think the introduction of both of these mother figures has been really interesting in that regard. I think Crystal Fox is so good yeah. that I really want to see more of her. And, um, you know, despite what I, I think could be read as perhaps a little bit of a stereotypical, um, thing regarding race and ethnicity with her doing this sort of witchy stuff with crystals and a feather and a bone, I think it was. I thought that that added this really interesting 
element of not the supernatural by any means, but something spiritual almost, mm, you know? Yeah. Um, which the show is sort of not, does not really have. Um, I mean, they have their own sort of religion, but that's more sort of money and, you know, status and all that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so I like that aspect of it. And I like someone speaking plainly, though they weren't trying to frame her as a savior character because she clearly has her own issues or past or, or present. Um, but the way that it, gives Bonnie more context is great. And that Toby Kravitz really rose to meet the material was great. I thought she was, I think she's very good in this episode. Um, and I think it's, I think that scene where she, she has with James Tupper where they're fighting uh, Bonnie and her husband and you realize like, well, why are they together? But you kind of still get it because they're both hot and they like, you know, like whatever, <laughs> like, it, like it, I just think it, you know, as with um, Madeline and her husband, like, I think that these, relationships though existing in sort of extreme circumstances are really credible in the way that you feel really ambivalent looking at them. Cause you're like, that's good. That's bad. Why does this work? Oh, I see kind of why it works. And even, you know, um, Elizabeth, Bonnie's mom, she's not outright saying that her daughter should leave her husband or whatever. She's just kind of, she's prodding the relationship to be better. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting way to play with the dynamics that were already set up so well in season one. And it's these women, um, these mothers coming in and doing some like, you know, perhaps or uh, whether or not we're meant to take it that way, truth telling perhaps about certain characters. So like you have Mary Louise calling out Madeline and then you've got Elizabeth calling out Nathan and being like, you, well, that's what you're, you're oblivious. That's what you are. You know what I mean? Like that's, mm-hmm. she just says this stuff at dinner and it's just sort of like, Oh, oh okay. This is where we are. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's incredible new, new variables to bring into the mix here. I think the questions around, how much of Bonnie's resistance, uh, you know, is due to her frustration that even if she wanted to, she couldn't tell her mother the whole truth of what's happening and how much of it is also, is just a true born out of a bad really, you know, because we don't know what her relationship with her mother was like growing up, but we do know that her mother at least once upon a time had a drinking problem. You know what I mean? So, um, that's, you know, that's just all really rich material to explore and, and really rich material for, for Zoe Kravitz, who once again, I felt was done a little dirty by the first season and is getting a lot more rich material to work with. And really, as you say, rising to the occasion, the like, the, the sort of sleepwalking nature of some of her scenes. Um, and then when, when this, her like sort of internal fire flares up. Um, that calibration, I think, is my favorite thing to watch this season. So I really like it. And you mentioned, you mentioned really briefly, like, sort of the idea of this, of the, the spiritual. Bonnie's mom also mentioned that she has visions. She has visions of someone drowning. We get a flash yeah. of water. Um, what do you think of, of that, um, element of it? I, I like that kind of portent. I think that, that, that whether or not it's going to be literal, um, I mean, water is certainly like we, you know, a motif on this show in a big way. Um, so maybe it's just speaking more to that, or maybe it's a more metaphorical drowning. Um, but I, 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 I like a sort of, I, I guess, I guess you could call it a different worldview, you know, where Elizabeth seems to have a different approach and philosophy and ideology about the way the world works, um, and what is perceptible and what's not, you know, and to shake 
you know, at least one character out of the stupor of this show with its rhythmic sounds of waves and its shots of a gray sky and its kind of wandering camera. Like you get, it's, it's hypnotic. And I think someone, even if she's coming at it from a sort of woo woo spiritual place herself, shaking someone out of that trance is, is interesting to watch. Mm, I like that. I hadn't thought of like the whole town itself as sort of lulling you to sleep with the waves and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. And, and, and the danger of the water. We talked about the water motif. This is something that I noticed in this, in the first watch through of the season. And, and the first time I watched through like the first three episodes that we have, like I noticed how often Bonnie is drinking water. And I just thought maybe that was supposed to be like, Oh, well, she's an incredibly healthy person and she's constantly hydrating. And I was like, I should hydrate more. Like that was sort of my takeaway. This time though, I'm watching through. I'm like, well, maybe this is something else at play here. And maybe they're trying to like mm-hmm. say something about the, the water that's constantly being ingested by Bonnie the way you know her mom says you're drowning in a way like she underlines the metaphor there but like the idea that Bonnie is constantly just swigging water swigging water swigging water um is interesting to me so something to keep a, a Bonnie Bonnie water watch uh 2019 is is uh, something I'm I'm willing to embark upon all right is there anything else we want to talk about in this episode um, I think we've covered everything. I mean, I would stress again, if someone can figure out a way to make, well, I mean, I know that you can, but you're busy to make really good <laughs> gifts of the moments we've mentioned. We welcome all forms of, uh, memery. <laughs> um, I do, so please- I do welcome a meme. You can tweet at us. Um, and, or you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'll get to our Twitter handles at the end of the episode. But first, let us go to our discussion with the great Crystal Fox. <laughs> I'm curious what uh, you can tell, you know, people listening to this will only have seen up through episode two, your first episode. But with that in mind, what can you tell Big Little Lies fan about your character, Elizabeth, and and what she brings to the show? That's the interesting thing. A lot of things I have to keep hush until I see it. I haven't seen any of the performances yet. I'll see it when the public sees it on Sunday. However, um, the... Little I can say is that I think you'll see where Bonnie gets, where she comes from. You know what I mean? The the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And her mom is grounded. She's kind of an earth woman. (laughs) Well, so to... um to maybe give you some context, help you out since I have seen the episode, there's this great dinner scene um, with you, uh, Nathan, Bonnie's husband, and then your husband, Martin, played by Martin Donovan, sort of all around the dinner table. And there's um, an implication in that scene that your character had a history with alcohol and is maybe <laughs> sort of veering back that way or not. I think we're, I think, well, I'll say this. I think when we meet Elizabeth this episode, we're supposed to have questions but not have decided one way or another whether Bonnie's resistance to her has to do with Bonnie's state of mind or whether or not Elizabeth wasn't a great parent after all. Do you know? Yeah. Now they show this in the second episode? That dinner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> that's good to know. I'm, I'm just fascinated. I'm like, what, really? I remember that. I thought that would probably have been at near the end. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> um, Well, this is the thing. Bonnie is so reserved that I think um, you you wonder when parents come into the scene, you wonder if they're just going to be there to be a rock. Is the person going to lean on them 
or not. And Bonnie's so strong-willed that I think you'll see that her mom brings out that resistance in her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they'll explore yeah. why and how. I like that answer. I know. Relationships, that. yeah. Because relationships are just can be complicated. A lot of times we just hear, oh my goodness, my relationship is so great with my mom and my dad. But you don't, you very rarely get to see complicated relationships played out in real life. (laughs) Yeah. Something I love is this introduction of your character and Meryl Streep's character. We get this added layer above of mothers, another generation of mothers above sort of the generation we met last season. Um, What do you think? Yeah. What do you think bringing that perspective into like, I guess something it does accomplishes is turn these women who we think of as mothers into daughters as well. You know, so what, what sort of, um, what does that do to the story and the narrative as a whole to turn these mothers into also daughters? Well, one thing that I loved about Big Little Lies is that when you, when you first start watching the episodes, um, take Nicole Kidman's scene, I thought they had such a loving, sexy relationship and then you get into it and you're just it felt like I had my mouth stayed open for the remainder of the season just watching them you're like what oh my goodness what isn't that amazing what what our perception is at first and then what it really what the reality is um uh, I was given this great phrase from uh the bishop of my church and that was no, perception is greater than reality. And a lot of times that is the truth. It's not the truth. It's just greater than reality. And yeah, my perception was one thing and the reality was a whole nother thing. All of that to say, that is another layer of what I think the moms bring. You, you, sometimes you almost automatically want to blame someone for their parents <laughs> or on, you know, how you are or your, or your, who you become on the parents. But I think they will become like a mirror so you can see, is it the parent's fault or mm. is it who you chose to become as a result of who your parents were? Yeah. But ultimately, ultimately, the decision ends up being up to you as to who you decide to become. One of my uh, favorite parts of this episode is you've got this um, sort of hiking scene with Bonnie. You guys are hiking in the woods and um, you call out something that I think was sort of implicit in the first season, which is that like the, the whiteness of Monterey and the fact that Bonnie doesn't look like the other mothers felt like part of the reason why she was shunned to a certain degree in season one, but it was never stated. And then you, you like, you go ahead and call out the fact that there are so many white people in Monterey and Bonnie is automatically on the outside because of that. What do you think about the way that this, that the first season treated, um, you know, the question of race in Monterey versus how the second season is, is dealing with it. Well, the interesting thing was that was very important for um, Zoe that that was mentioned or dealt with. Um, That was kind of, I think my first day or first, first or second day working. And that was something that they wanted to cover. Um, I don't real, I don't recall them dealing with that at all in the first season. In, In this season, I think it's good. Well, one, that once I appear, you do see the distinct difference, I think, more. And the fact that I ask about it 
brings attention to it. Another thing that I think it does is it leaves this question mark too. Is that something that she did or she chose to do that Bonnie chose to do on purpose to go live somewhere where she's not, where she's kind of a singular figure to have her own life away from her mom. Right. Yeah. Uh, And anything that reminds her of her mom, you know, I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a very good question. You mentioned that this is important to, to Zoe and, and my perception of Big Little Lies is that more than most shows, uh, it allows the actresses or the, or the performers to weigh in on the way in which their story is told. What do you, what have you observed about sort of the collaborative process, um, between the main cast and the script? Oh, it seemed to be fully open and accessible for everyone to create and to make suggestions, um, and, and to explore. So that just seemed to be a given across the board for everybody. Is that different from, from most that you've been on or, or similar to some? Uh, fortunately for me, that's been the case is that has been allowed and encouraged wherever I worked. And I, I love that because I come from theater and it is total collaborative. It's a total collaborative effort. That's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. One thing I've I've also heard about Big Little Lies is that there's a good deal of of improv. Was that true of your of your scenes as well with with Bonnie? Some, <laughs> well, some, it, well, I mean, you do the basis of what is scripted, and then you play. So that was allowed a lot, uh, especially with Andrea, our director. She loves music, and a lot of music was on the set all the time. So there would be times where you'd be doing something and you just finished the scene and this song would pop up and uh, people would just instinctively start dancing. And it was just a lot of fun. A lot of fun. <laughs> Sounds lovely. <laughs> just a lot of fun. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think that those things made it to the, to the scenes, but it helped inform the scene sometimes make, uh, and, and make heavier moments lighter. <laughs> yeah. I, that, that must be necessary to navigate some of the stuff that happens in Big Little Lies. There's also, um, there's also part of this episode where your character sort of lays down these, these crystal, a crystal and some other objects sort of by, by ah. the character while she's sleeping. And then Bonnie gives it back and says like, I don't want any of this like shit in my life, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. Excuse my mm-hmm. French. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, you know, and this idea of visions of, of Elizabeth, your character and visions, um, how, how seriously are we meant to take this? What, what do you think about adding this sort of spiritual, um, element to Big Little Lies? Yeah, it can be tricky. It can be very, very tricky. Um, because you may turn people off with it immediately, but I do believe that people, there are people that, um, have seeing ability or healing abilities. And I think that Elizabeth has those. And I think that's what she's trying to just impart is a sense of peace and healing around Bonnie because she sees that she is not handling things well. 
the the idea of I've had a vision of someone drowning and like you're drowning in a way like sort of saying mm-hmm. like make it make it the metaphor explicit. <laughs> uh, there's so much stuff <laughs> about like about water and waves and the ocean and big little lies. And something I noticed and I don't know maybe you could tell me I'm crazy, but um, Zoe's character Bonnie is always drinking water, and I know that she's like the healthiest person on the planet and is always doing yoga <laughs> and is like constantly <laughs> hydrating anyway. But is there any sort of like uh, intentionality around her constantly gulping water and this like, this drowning sort of motif? Is that at all connected or am I just reaching? I absolutely wouldn't know. Okay. No, I would know, <laughs> but I absolutely would not know that. <laughs> and then, yeah, you, you mentioned um, Andrea's directorial style and this idea of music and dancing, but I know it can be tough for a director to come into a project. I know you weren't on the first season, but I know Jean-Marc Vallée had such like a, you know, creative, you know, stronghold over the first season. Uh, did you observe mm-hmm. anything about this, I don't know, passing the baton over to Andrea, the way that the cast treated her or the way that, um, you know, she intentionally tried to match the style of the first season? No, I, well, not that I know of. I don't think that she was trying to match it as much as when I saw um, some, a footage or some footage of her own piece, it's, was similar to me. I, I mm-hmm. hope no one gets upset with me for that, but in look to me as Jean-Marc. So I, I felt that they just welcomed her with open arms. Yeah. We were all the newbies, but, um, she, and again, she was so open just with everyone was to collaboration. She'd listen to people's suggestions and, and it's kind of like, you know, this, this work. So you just kind of listen to the other people tell you or ask you or guide you in that same direction. Um, yeah. So it was just very open and and very welcoming to her. Well, so you mentioned uh, also being welcome with open arms. Um, my question, you know, I know we, I know we can't sort of dig into it too much, but if your character's relationship with Bonnie is complicated, which it seems to be. Yeah. Yes. What kind of work outside of the performance do you do with Zoe to either, is it is it worth doing extra work to sort of create a bond or since that bond is so sort of fractured and delicate and complicated um do you not want to bond too much off screen to to create that sort of tension you know I understand what you're saying um I work on another show as well and and I play another mom mm-hmm. and me and my daughter have really bad relationship but I have to say and I know some people would rather not um, bond with someone that they have to have a difficult relationship with. For me, it worked in a, the opposite way. Um, I I met Zoe and we clicked right away. And it's something about, to me, the safer you feel, but the I don't want to say easy because it's not necessarily an easy thing to do difficult or play difficult scenes, but the safer you feel with each other, the easier or more comfortable it is to go to those darker places. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, because you have a, you feel safe. You, you, because more times than not, if you're with a giving actor, like Zoe is, um, and, and other, and my, uh, other 
co-star Tika Sumter, uh, you just say, let's play, let's try different things. But you feel safe because you have some type of connection with each other. And then you can try anything because you know the intentionality is totally character based. And then, you know, what, what can you, um, I guess I'll, I'll leave this last part up to you and maybe that's not fair, but <laughs> what, <laughs> what can you say about your care, what you're excited for people to see from your character, um, this season without spoiling anything about where it, where it all is going to go? Someone told me, gave me a description of, in an interview that said, um, so we hear that Elizabeth is a nasty person. Oh. And I thought, nasty i (laughs) i hadn't heard that but i think that all people are capable of a nice nasty there's there's the kind that you see and then there's the part you don't see the people that see that are like your family but there's that cover-up yeah and i think you might have seen a little bit of that at the dinner table Yes, absolutely. Nice, nasty is what we have to look forward to. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think you're going to see that. It's a little nice, nasty. <laughs> you, you and Meryl both bringing the nice, nasty to Monterey. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. I think that's going to play out a lot. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode. Next week, we'll be talking about episode three, She Knows. Dun, 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 another ominous uh, sort of episode. <laughs> no, actually, sorry. Next week is called The End of the World, even more ominous. The End of the World coming next week. Um, and then still somehow four more episodes to go after that. Uh, Richard, until next week, where can people find you? I mean, maybe hanging around around an aquarium because I know that, like, uh, Jane doesn't really seem to like this new love interest, Corey, but I think he's cute, so... You know, I'll take him off her hands if she, if she doesn't want him. Um, and then I'll also be on Twitter at Rylaws and on VF.com. Joanna, where will you be? Um, I will just be circling the block, screaming out the sunroof of my Tesla. Thank you so much for bringing up Corey. I, I'm, I'm ashamed that we forgot to mention him. He, he looks like he enjoys a kale salad and what's not to love about someone who enjoys a kale salad. So hopefully we'll see more of cute aquarium Corey. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at cute aquarium Corey. No, at Joe wrote this. <laughs> uh, once again, you can email us. It's still watching pod at gmail.com. We will see you next time. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.